The following is offered by Discerning Hearts, a 501 nonprofit Catholic apostolate dedicated to spiritual formation through the use of digital media. To download this selection, or to browse hundreds of other programs, or to contribute to our mission with a charitable donation, which is fully tax-deductible, visit our website at discerninghearts.com. Ignatius Press and the Augustan Institute present The Formed Book Club. Catholic book lovers unpacking good books chapter by chapter. If you like us, please help us by subscribing and by reviewing us on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you might listen. And don't forget to sign up for weekly updates and study questions at formedbookclub.ignatius.com. We're back. The Formed Book Club leaders, guides. Uh, we have trouble advancing sometimes uh, too far because there's too much there to discuss. Uh, but we left off uh, on page, oops, 103. Uh, and I wanted to move to page 104. Uh, no, we already did 104, actually. Mm -hmm. I want to go to 105 because uh, the new paragraph there, uh, this, quote, thinkers, unquote, attitude, that is those who think they can use the faith as a springboard, leave behind, and then just do thinking about it. This thinkers attitude is perhaps distinguished it is in any case convenient since it automatically confers immunity from any martyrdom. That's right. You know that? And you see, Balthasar wrote an entire book on this called Cordula or the Moment of Christian Witness. Oh, yeah, that's a great book. Where he says that's that's the standard by which you measure Christianity. Are you willing to die for it? Can we do that book in the book club? Put on, yeah, that's a great book. That is a great book, The Moment of Christian Witness. Make it out. It's be, a, in a small book. Too. It's a small book, and it would be a great book after this because it starts with the modern philosophical. Let's do it. All right, put okay. it on there. I don't think I, I, we get we have a, we have an altercation online here, which is always fun. Um, I don't think we should do it next. I think okay. we could do the break in philosophy and the book we have next, which is uh, um, about um, Vietnam. Vietnam. Okay. Which, by the way, is the lived on the ground praxis. Of Marxism in Vietnam. I mean, there so, we are. so, exactly. that's a good... so I, think, I think we need to we need some right. light leaf from the heavy philosophy before we return to it. That's all I'm okay. saying. All right, good. All right, and then I want to jump to page 107, but if someone has something before that, and you're welcome to intercede, interject, interpose, intervene. Uh, about 10 lines down, uh, this Kierkegaard is opposing Hegel. The Lubach says, does he recognize how much a converted Hegelianism could contribute, like all great human thought, to an authentic understanding through faith? So the Lubach there is also, he's always trying to, to recapture, to recover whatever is good, whatever is good. In an error. And the new paragraph there, uh, and this, this refers to something someone else said earlier here about Kierkegaard. One cannot help wondering, too, whether it is not only rationalism that comes in for a drubbing, does not reason itself emerge with a few bruises. Mm -hmm. So that, again, that's, you, Joseph, you talked about the, the pendulum swing there. Mm -hmm. And, you know, that's where, you know, Delubach, in my view, is so deeply Catholic uh, and serene. They're like Ratzinger's the same way. Uh, they can see the good in even error, 
but they don't go to either of the extremes. They're, they're able to remain in the Catholic center, which is not some kind of a lukewarmness between hot and cold, but rather a, a holding in attention what is paradoxical. Uh, in fact, I love this on the top of 106. Uh, this is the Lubach speaking. No, the improbable is not the enemy, but the food of faith. <laughs> yeah, underline that. That's good. So I think we've all underlined the last paragraph of this chapter. Or, or the, I want to interject with, with a comment on page 109 because it's within my comfort zone. If I, if, uh, okay. if I may. Please do. So about five lines down on page 109, um, to refuse a man the right to inform us of what he thinks and to arrogate to oneself the right to understand him not as he understands himself, but as he ought to be understood, is a very subjective principle of exegesis. That's, that's a good understatement. Um, that, that the, my, whole, my whole approach to literary criticism is exactly that we have to give the author the authority to speak for himself. We can then, of course, disagree with him, should we wish, right? But unless we're allowed to allow him to speak for himself and to understand his voice and what he's trying to say and what he's trying to do, we're not going to understand the work, first of all, or the author. We can then step back and say, OK, I now understand what he's doing and what he's trying to do. And I think he's wrong about anthropology and, you know, whatever. And you're going to step back and, and make a judgment. But you have to at least give him the, you know, the, 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 the charge to speak before you rebut him. So the whole idea of, you know, I'm going to, I'm going to reinterpret this person uh, in, in accordance to what he, how he ought to be understood. In other words, usually how I think he should be understood, right? Uh, so I think, that, I think that's important. Okay, and I'll interject another parenthesis here. Uh, it turns out that I had never heard, to my knowledge, one of the top five songs of the 20th century. Uh, American Pie, because in 1970 or 71, I was in Europe and I just didn't know about it. When I came back, I guess it had sort of, you know, not been popular anymore. But uh, it's an amazing song, but there's all kinds of interpretations of what it really means. And the author, for many, many you know, writer, composer, for, for decades, would not clarify it. He says, you guys think about it yourself. But finally, now he's beginning to say, you know, that's right or that's wrong. Anyway, that's a question. Before we get to the final paragraph, just because I this I think there's a there's well, I don't know, paradox, a conundrum maybe. So immediately below what I just read, so page 109, that new paragraph. It must be recognized that Kierkegaard is a stimulating writer rather than a safe one. Well, that's fair enough. His ideas are not so much a food as a tonic, and taken in too large a dose, they might become a toxin. Yeah. Now, <laughs> first of all, that that's wonderful prose. I mean, that the use of words and the paradox, and it's just it's beautiful. It's beautiful English, even in translation. So, but my question is, if this thing, the Kierkegaard is well Kierkegaard himself his ideas if it can be a toxin now if something can be toxic 
how in its essence, it's obviously not safe, <laughs> but how in, it, how in its essence is it good? That's just well, my, my question. Well, let's just take wine as an example. Wine is good, but if you drink too much of it, you will become intoxicated, right? The, the good thing in your body has now become a toxin. And the I understand that fully, but the yeah. point is, it, but Kierkegaard, I mean, is all of it good, but we should just sip? <laughs> um, or is that the, the, the totality of it, uh, in other words, if we just immerse ourselves in Kierkegaardianism, perhaps to the exclusion of other things, we are actually poisoning ourselves? Well, I would like, I don't know enough about Kierkegaard to answer that question from any position of authority myself. But if you keep reading this quote from de Lubach, he kind of clarifies more what he's saying. Anyone who thinking to follow in Kierkegaard's footsteps entrenched himself forthwith in Kierkegaard's positions would run the risk. It's a risk, not a guarantee. It's a risk of cutting himself off from all rational life and perhaps from all culture an inhuman attitude that was certainly not Kierkegaard's and that would be of no benefit to Christianity in the end. So the danger, whatever danger is there, and Dulebach knows better than I what it is, I think he spells out here what the danger is. Well, also, I mean, many remedies are toxins, but you take them in small doses. Vaccines, for example, are toxic. Antibiotics. If, yeah. If you, but, I mean, is he saying that we should just dip into Kierkegaard then and not study his corpus? I mean, uh, th th that's, that's, my, that's my question here. I mean, obviously, for some people to, to, to immerse ourselves in him, to study his corpus is not just dangerous, and that might be a good or bad thing. Going on adventure is not necessarily a bad thing, but um, that, that he can lead us in the wrong direction. Yes. Well, yes, it's like, you know, I don't like food that it's not salted, but I don't eat salt just by itself. But I mean, I know what salt is and it, it, it nourishes, it, it gives the food a kind of a savor. So I, I think the thing is you can read Kierkegaard and read all of them, be immersed in him, but realize that there's a world outside of him which has into which he must be integrated. By the way, he was the first author in my young intellectual life. Well, I didn't ever get much older, I don't think, but anyway, uh, or I actually began reading the source itself oh. because he's, he's, he's kind of the father of existentialism, you know, mm -hmm. I read about, I began reading about, oh my gosh, this, this is wonderful what he says. Uh, so that, yes, I, I think he's good in himself, but he's not the complete good. He's not the Catholic good. He hadn't entered the fullness of the faith, you know, but I think, I think, I think you answered the problem, uh, the, the, the connection. Um, that if we can see Kierkegaard um, in, as part of a bigger picture. So I think the real danger is people that don't see the bigger picture and Kierkegaard becomes their cosmos. Um, and, and that's when I think it becomes toxic. If you can see Kierkegaard in the light of Plato, Aristotle, Augustine, Aquinas as part of the tradition, part of the conversation, I've only got to this, by the way, by what both of you just said, but I think that's exactly what, 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 what this is about. That if you're going to see Kierkegaard somehow offering a totality, you're eating a diet of salt and you're going to poison yourself. Now, I have a question, and I don't have the answer immediately to mind, 
But this chapter is about Nietzsche and Kierkegaard. Mm -hmm. And we know the book is about the drama of atheist humanism. And certainly Nietzsche is the exemplar of humanism without God, like Feuerbach is and like Comte will be. But why is Kierkegaard now associated with Nietzsche in a book about the drama of atheist humanism? The antidote. Okay. Well, I think also it's showing, I think it's showing the drama of the, what's going on in the intellectual milieu that both of these men come from, that there is a drama going on in the, in the exchange of ideas and, and in uh, conversation with each other and with their times and with, and so I think Kierkegaard is part of that story. He's part of that drama. But as we see, he's not an atheist. Now, Vivian, actually, I think, I think if, yeah, that, that's marvelous, Vivian. It's, it's absolutely marvelous because uh, I think when we, 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 we what we, what, when, when uh, thinking about using the word drama here as an adjective, right? The, you know, it's all about atheist humanism you know uh, and there's a dramatic dimension to it no actual fact no it's about the drama right and, and so it's not, not not drama as an adjective which of course it isn't it's a noun so what we're talking about here is what what's what what does atheist humanism cause that's a drama and one of the things it causes as part of the drama is Kierkegaard um, as an antidote to it um, <clears throat> even though as de Lubach says following that quote even further on 109, in any case, Kierkegaard cannot be considered a teacher. And he would have been the first to deny himself that title. A strange man, a morbid and complicated mind, he himself referred in his journals to the queer intimacy of the machinery that produced his writings. Okay, so, right? He, we're seeing him in context. We're seeing all, I think de Lubach is doing a brilliant job of giving us the context that these men are thinking in and writing in and how they're responding to their times, how they're responding to each other, which is just great because I would have never been able to go find all this on my own. Well, even if you could, you wouldn't have the time. Yeah. This is a great service that people like de Lubach do for us. Yes. Is they, they kind of get these selections and we, we've learned to trust them because their selections are not tendentious. They're, the proportion of what they give you yeah. corresponds to the proportion of the thought itself. Yes. You know, uh, like Chesson in, in Everlasting Man, it's the outline of history, right? Well, you have to trust someone that knows what's important and what's, what's secondary. Yes. Uh, who Absolutely. wants to read the last 10 or so lines on page 111? That's what I was going to ask. <laughs> Joseph, you're our fearless leader. Why don't you read it? Uh, okay, I will just okay. So I'm gonna. So um, uh, I want to start with at least with the with the sense. Tell, it says it is sufficient. Yeah, that's where I was going to start from too. Okay, got it. It is sufficient that this freelance, outlawed by his church, was the witness chosen by God to compel a world that increasingly disowned it to contemplate the greatness of faith. That, in a century carried away by immanentism, he was the herald 
of transcendence. It is sufficient that this despiser of all apologetics was, in his own way, himself a powerful apologist. His whole work finds a fitting commentary in this maxim from the postscript, quote, Preparation for becoming attentive to Christianity does not consist in reading books or in making surveys of world history, but in deeper immersion in existence. We'll return to the Forum Book Club with Father Joseph Fessio, Vivian Dudreau, and Joseph Pierce in just a moment. Did you know that Discerning Hearts has a free app in which you can find all your favorite Discerning Hearts programming? Father Timothy Gallagher, Dr. Anthony Lillis, Deacon James Keating, Mike Aquilina, Dr. Matthew Bunsen, and so many more are found on the Discerning Hearts free app. Did you also know that you can stream Discerning Hearts programming on numerous streaming platforms such as Apple Podcasts, Google Play, iHeartRadio, Pandora, Spotify, Stitcher, TuneIn, and so many more. And did you know that Discerning Hearts also has the YouTube page? Be sure to check out all these different places where you can find Discerning Hearts. Take, Lord, and receive all my liberty, my memory, my understanding, and my entire will, all that I have and call my own. You have given all to me. To you, Lord, I return it. Everything is yours. Do with it what you will. Give me only your love and your grace. That is enough for me. Amen. Hello, my name is Deacon Omar Gutierrez, and I want to ask you to support Discerning Hearts in a special way. We, Chris McGregor, the board, and I all know that not everyone listening can help financially. We know we have listeners from all parts of the world, and we have made a commitment since the beginning to make the truths shared through Discerning Hearts totally free. So while you may not be able to contribute financially, what you can do is certainly pray, but also give us positive reviews on whatever platform you use to listen to us. If it's iTunes, Android, Stitcher, Spotify, however it is that you get these podcasts, or if you're on YouTube and you like our videos, please give us a good rating and write a review. The more good ratings and reviews we get, the higher our profile, and the more listeners will discover us, listeners who may have the means to contribute in the future. Please consider rating us and writing a positive review today. We now return to the Formed Book Club with Father Joseph Fezio, Vivian Dudreau, and Joseph Pierce. It's beautiful. It is beautiful, and it's, and it's Kierkegaard. Well, then let's leave him the last word on this chapter and move to chapter three. Where, where are we on our time for this session? We have another 15 minutes. Oh, okay. Uh, the Spiritual Battle. Joseph. Okay, well, um, I'm going to begin at the beginning um, with reading the first couple of sentences. Every age has its heresies. Every age also sees a renewal of the general rule that faith must be attacked. For a long time now, ever since its foundation, Christianity has never ceased to be assailed. 
but not always from the same quarter, nor by the same type of adversary, nor with the same weapons. So, I mean, again, that's marvellous prose. Also reminds me very much of Chesterton, you know, uh, both uh, in orthodoxy, his, you know, the basically various attacks upon it from every direction you can imagine, most of which are self-contradictory. Uh, and then the everlasting man, that, 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 that basically that, that, that history is a... Uh, leads to Christ, but then there's, there's efforts to reject Christ. And, and Belloc, the great heresies, um, you could carry on, Chesterton, her heretics. But he then says um, that... Uh, um, he he, he, he gives four different, four different types of normal heresies, yes. Exactly. Do you, want, do you want to take that up, please? Well, yeah, just not reading the whole thing, we're just kind of jumping here. He says, uh, sometimes this is shifted... No, excuse me. Uh, sometimes it is historical substructure, which is to say historical criticism, exegesis, which kind of tries to dissolve the realness of Christ into, you know, simple literary uh, conventions. So historicism. Then next, sometimes it's shift the metaphysical field. That is, they deny the very existence of high reality. Skipping down, often the politicians then say, well, the church is merely here for domination. And then finally, there are the objections of a social character, namely that the church is not interested in this world. And by the way, Lubach's first major work called Catholicism uh, was a refutation of that from the quotations of the fathers of the church and church history. So then on page 113, there's none of these types of objections is obsolete today. They're still around. Yet the principal attack comes from elsewhere. This is interesting. What is in the foreground in reality, if not always an appearance, is no longer an historical, metaphysical, political, or social problem. It is a spiritual problem. Three lines down. The Christian conception of life. Boy, does he hit the nail on the head on that one. Yeah, but if I can possibly add a caveat, I think you might have missed one, if I dare say so, if you can shoot me down. But because um, you have the very existence of reality higher than the things of this world is then denied or declared unknowable. So this, this ironic reduction of absurdum of using metaphysics to deny metaphysics. Um, but then he says, or else uh, you leave nothing outside the clutches of a reason that insists on understanding everything. So in other words, you, you have this metaphysics leads to postmodernism, metaphysics that leads to the fact there's no, that, 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 that's, there's um, no physics, you know, that you prove metaphysics to prove that metaphysics doesn't exist, and you also prove metaphysics to prove that physics doesn't exist, um, that basically there's nothing but nothing. But then you have the other, rationalism, that there's nothing outside the physics. In other words, metaphysics is 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 absurd. It's only physics. So I, I think that's you left that one out. Well, are you saying you're saying two parts of metaphysical heresy? No, I'm saying the first is that you use, use metaphysics ultimately to, to to deny the existence of anything, you know, of any yes, you know, nothing but nothing, which means you actually use metaphysics to deny metaphysics and physics. But then you have rationalism, or she does say, or else. So he's he's distinguishing, or else taking the opposite course. It basically says there's metaphysics is 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 non-existent. You can't use metaphysics because all that there is is physics, and everything can be explained rationally in terms of facts. Well, I'm not going to be conciliatory here because I think he's he's got four 
elements, which he names on page 113, historical, metaphysical, political, or social. But under metaphysical, he includes the two dimensions you talked about, which are contradictory, but they're still metaphysical, both of them. Okay, what I'm saying, and I, 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 we're going to come to a synthesis here in good Hegelian terms. I, I think what, what I'm saying, the, the political is a subset of the practicality, utilitarianism, which comes from rationalism. So in, in, in other words, what you call political is, is, is what he says, or else... No, no, is a no, reason. I'm sorry, I'm sorry. Because he says often the politicians take over from whom? The historians and metaphysicians. Okay. Well, in that case, then I would argue that, um, that the, four, the four are not the four you've given, but the four are um, historicism. I, I know if I can count here. Historicism, metaphysics leading to postmodernism, rationalism leading to materialism. Um, and then the politicians are, are the, the servants of those misreadings of things. Does he say four? I think Joseph, that's I'm, I'm sorry, but on page 113, he, he lists the four types. It is no longer an historical, comma, metaphysical, comma, political, should be comma there too, or social problem. Those are the four. Don't, don't you know, Joseph, just say, just say I'm right. <laughs> <laughs> well, you usually are right. You usually are right. I'm still puzzled. <laughs> okay. Well, yeah. But I think we can all agree on his next point that what we're dealing with now is a spiritual problem that requires keen discernment. And and that's why the name of this uh, chapter is The Spiritual Battle. And, and Delubach is going to give us the tools of discernment, first intellectual and then spiritual, as a true son of Ignatius would. Yes. And that's really what's needed today is discernment. And and so that because even this what's under attack is the Christian conception of life. I I I on what Father read on page 113, but you know, I don't want to get back into concepts and ideas. What De Lubach is really saying is that the very Christian experience and relationship to God is what is at stake. Because, and then he goes on to say, you know, it was possible to preserve the benefits of Christianity while ceasing to be a Christian. That's kind of what we saw, uh, you know, in the 1800s and early 1900s. And now even today, we've got people who are somewhat culturally Christian or they, they're, they're still benefiting from Christianity, having been the heart of the culture, but they're really not practicing Christians. And then I love this though. We are to the point now where people where where on the 113 where? toward the bottom, okay. they have no desire to live upon the perfume of an empty vase. We're in a new stage of the battle now where, where, you know, people like Nietzsche, they don't want Christ at all. They don't want Christian ethics. They don't want Christian morality. In fact, I think we're going to get this quote where um, yeah, on the top of 114, um, where, uh, you know, everything's being called in the question, blah, blah, blah. Jesus had brought about a reversal of values. It is a reversal of values that they are undertaking in their turn to the Christian ideal. They oppose a pagan ideal against the God worshiped by Christians. They proudly set up their new deities. In doing so, they are conscious of attacking essentials and sweeping everything away. 
Right. Yeah, and I agree. The only, the only caveat I would make there is that this is not pagan. It's uh, it's deeper than that. Um, that what Christ brings is a reversal of values uh, away from pride. Uh, and what they have reverted to is pride. So it's diabolical. It's not pagan. Correct. And uh, and, and Delubach knows that and even says that more and more explicitly as the chapter goes on. We're not even dealing just with a paganism or a neo-paganism. We're actually dealing with the demonic. Good. The battlefield. I've got 117. If, if anybody trumps that, go for it. No. Well, back to this demonic, the, uh, Nietzsche, I mean, the bottom one, 14, his denial radical from the outside, be outset became more and more violent and frantic. His last writings are full of outbursts of hatred and invective. We're not even dealing with the niceties of polite debate. Right. Or reason, which he didn't believe in anyway at this point. I mean, ultimately, you talk about spiritual battle here. There's there's something implicit in those two sentences you just you just uh, read that it's not just that he loses his reason in terms of becoming mad. He's demonically possessed. That by the end of his life, he's basically de demonically possessed. I mean, we can't know that, but I mean, that's that's what seems to be what's happening there. Well, who so, else would? War against the Christian ideal, he said, this is top of six, 116, against the doctrine that makes beatitude and salvation the aim of life, against the supremacy of the poor in spirit, the pure in heart, the suffering, the failures. He's actually, he, you know, it used to be people would give lip service to Christian values and ideals. And he's saying, no, I'm the bold man who's now going to say those very ideals are what I'm against. This is the sin. This is, could be the sin that Jesus says to blaspheme against the Holy Spirit. I mm. mean, that you're actually rejecting, directly outright rejecting the spiritual values which Christianity has proposed, which Christ has proposed. Yeah. Joseph, go yeah. ahead. Yeah, it's just that I, again, you know, that Nietzsche prided himself on his originality. And I, you know, I, I, I sometimes say that the only original thing is original sin and everything after that is a sort of somewhat poor copy so i love the fact this wonderful uh understatement middle page 117 by the lubach uh understatement which is is damning in its uh, you know it nietzsche flattered himself Three-word sentence. In other words, you know, I'm the most original thinker. I've, I've gone against Christ. I've really got thought back to radical thought. And he goes back, without going back to the earliest century. So first of all, there's a whole host of, 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 of Roman uh, objections to Christ and, and, and Zoroastrianism being, the, being the, the religion of the warrior, not the religion of the slave. So, you know, all of this stuff he says is so original goes right back to the dawn of Christianity. And then he mentions Machiavelli and Diderot and Baron Dolbach and grim in other words you know he's not he's not original this is just uh the the, the, the same reiteration of of pride the diabolical pride that rejects christ mm -hmm. well the originality of nietzsche is that he's a poet as well as a thinker and he had a tremendous ability to write in a powerful poetic literary way and so that just like every poet has a particular you know charism or or style 
Nietzsche had that. It was very powerful. And de Lubac himself says, as far as Nietzsche's originality goes, on the middle of 118, it must be agreed that never before Nietzsche had so mighty an adversary arisen. Adversary. Yeah, adversary. adversary. Well, Thank well, you. Well, he's like, like Adolf Hitler. He's not, he's not original, but he's, he's certainly um, uh, a great demagogue. He Demigod. makes a game of all that up till now had been held sacred, good, inviolable, divine. You know, I, I think his his just sheer boldness on this front was something was something new in Europe, in in Christian Europe, right? I mean, not not the not the opposition when Christianity first well, came. You could talk about style. I mean, not again. What he's saying is not new, and I'm I'm agreeing with the Lubeck here. His I mean, and I do agree also that every poet, everybody who is using his creative gifts, has a charism which is unique to that particular person. So, in that sense, yes, uh, he is unique, and therefore he is original. Um, but you know, but, but the, the approach he's using here is 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 the approach of, quite frankly, the punk rocker, right? Is that I'm going to shock. I'm right, but he precedes the punk rocker. The punk rocker would almost be right, inconceivable I, I, without I don't, I don't Nietzsche. Think, I don't think he's <laughs> the first punk rocker. Machiavelli was a punk rocker. I mean, what I'm saying, using the rhetorical device of shock, all right, he, he uses it brilliantly with his own unique charism, but it's not actually original. That the, the, the rhetorical approach of, of let's shock people into listening to me. Right. Anything before 120? No, I've got something on 120, but please. Uh, well, first paragraph about Nietzsche. The facts testify that he has succeeded all too well. His influence today is worldwide. This is 1944, but it's still true now. Neo-paganism is a great spiritual phenomenon of our age. Joseph, do you have a comment on that? Because yeah, this is a good. What I have to say is, it's not, it's not as conclusive. I mean, it's not a good conclusion to the discussion. We're at, we're at thirty minutes. I, I, I'm happy to start with what I'm going to say further down on page 120 next time. Well, also, I would just like to point out that he's writing this, as we've already mentioned, in Nazi-occupied um, France, and. Uh, the neo-paganism that he keeps referring to in, in other ways is, is Nazism. That, that is the thing that he is referring well, to. It's a manifestation of it. Absolutely. Yes. Yeah. And so um, that's just something to keep in mind that when he's, when he's saying neo-paganism, it's a thinly veiled way of talking about the Nazism that is now dominant in Western Europe. And he's living. And I agree with you, but we don't want to reduce uh, his arguments to a topicality. You know, that the neo-paganism transcends Nazism. Nazism's had its day. Um, uh, at that time, it seemed very powerful. But the neo-paganism manifests itself in other ways. And yes, yes that, would, that would absolutely have been in people's minds when they read this. And yes. certainly in his mind when he wrote it. But yes. the neo-paganism transcends Nazism. Yes, I agree, of course. I want to read that whole quote from Maria Reiner Rilke. Well, that was what I was going to do, but... Well, go ahead. You go ahead. Then you do it. Are you going to carry on then, Father? We're at 32 minutes. It's up to you. Well, let's finish with this quote from Rilke and any comments we have on it. And by the way, Rilke was, you know, very well-regarded, famous 
German poet. And by the way, you have to realize when you're listening to it, as de Lubach points out in his footnote, this early text does not represent Rilke's later thinking. Oh, okay. Okay, so his influence from his later works is a different spirit from where he was when he wrote. Well, basically, it. what you've done, you've 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 you've, you've stolen my thunder, which I'm really oh. pleased. It was oh, a full oh my god! It was a full thunder. No, I was just saying that how disappointed I was. Because, you know, I love the poetry of Rainer Maria Rilke. And when I read this, I thought, you know, because there seems to be at least an implicit Christian mysticism in his greatest poetry. That, at least that's the way I've taken it and read it and, and on occasion even taught it. So I was deflated, you know, when I read this. I, I, I was disappointed. And so to, to, and I hadn't read the footnotes. So thank you. But we'll read it now and we can comment thereafter. Um, so this is the quote from Rilke. He who men worship as the Messiah turns the whole world into an infirmary. He calls the weak, the unfortunate, the disabled, his children and his loved ones. What about the strong? How are we ourselves to climb if we lend our strength to the unfortunate and the oppressed, to idle rogues with no wits and no energy? Let them fall. Let them die alone and wretched be hard be terrible be pitiless you must thrust yourselves forward forward a few men but great ones will build a world with their strong muscular masterful arms on the corpses of the weak the sick and the infirm so when he wrote that, he got taken up with this neo-pagan spirit of that time, the Nazi ideal. And it's absolute Nazism. That's Nazism to the core and in its essence. It is. Yeah. And it's so interesting how other writers of this time had the perspicacity to see how far and wide the spirit had spread beyond, as you said, Joseph, Nazism itself. So you see it in Sigrid Unset. You see it in Flannery O'Connor. You see it in other writers. I can't think now. My mind is going blank, but there are so many who picked up on this is precisely the spirit of the age. And yeah, not I, would say, I would say one thing very interesting. You mentioned the footnote. This is 1896. So these are this is actually this is the grassroots of the culture of Germanic neo-paganism, which laid the foundations for Nazism. And the very fact that those words of Rainer Maria Rilke could have been said by any of the leading up, but by Hitler by Goebbels, you know, um, by Himmler. Any of the leaders of the Nazis could have could have made that speech. And we know, know from, from German history that by the time Nazism comes on the scene as 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 the most powerful party standing, this this had already made inroads, you know, Weimar German medicine is when they started eradicating the imbeciles and the old and the terminally ill, whatever. Not under Hitler, long before Hitler came to power. They were they were killing the infirm, the the, the eugenics movement that came here to yeah, this country, you know. Right. So so uh, this this thing was seeping, seeping, seeping into the culture, and yes, it manifests in in Nazism. How could that possibly? That case, you take it further back, and I I normally criticize that what I take as the shallowness of Chestertons and Belloc's approach to the propaganda of World War One, but they 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 called the spirit of Prussia. The, the, the spirit of the barbarian 
And then you take it back further. You take it back to the Kulterkampf, right, uh, and to Bismarck. And you can take it back further. Then you, know, you take it back to the fact that perhaps Catholic Christianity never did sink its roots in the, the northeastern Germanic parts of Europe, such as you know, Prussia. So Prussianism is, is a, a non-evangelized part of Christendom, and that's what leads to all of this manifestation. And yeah, great Christian minds and souls have come out of that, like um, Gertrude von Lefort. So we don't want to like discount the possibility, right? Yeah. Well, as we conclude, I would just say this: one of the things we learn from De Lubac is how important influential ideas are. Yes. And why reading books and a book club and discussing these things is the best way to prepare us so that we will not be led again into some, you know, false view of life uh, as has been happened so often in history. So we'll see you next session. We'll finish up this chapter and read 50 to 60 pages ahead uh, as far as you think we'll get. <laughs> Thank you. God bless you. If you enjoyed this discussion, Please help spread the word about the Forum Book Club by subscribing to the podcast and writing a review. You can sign up for weekly updates at formedbookclub.ignatius.com.